0: scripture clearly states that during the millennium there will be a restoration of the temple and the sacrificial system. How can this be, since Jesus paid the price as the final sacrifice with his death on the cross? Well, stay with us and find out. You're listening to the question and answer program with our Bible teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, who answered the questions of his many listeners for over 30 years. This is a ministry of the Through the Bible Radio Network. Before we get to our questions, though, let me first remind you to take some time in the next few days to write and let us know that you're listening to this broadcast. The only way that we know that you're listening and enjoying this program is when you write and tell us. Now let's get to those questions. The first one comes to us from Charlotte, North Carolina. The listener writes, Could you explain why there will be animal sacrifices during
1: the millennium? And that, my friend, is a very good question. That is one of the objections that I heard against the premillennial viewpoint and taking the scripture literally to restore the bloody sacrifices would be a terrible thing. Well, may I say to you, I've thought about that a great deal since then. I don't think it's a terrible thing. If the bloody sacrifice before Christ came pointed to his coming, certainly the bloody sacrifice for Israel can be used to point back to his coming and it make it clear to them that those sacrifices before he came pointed to him. And then it will tell something of the tremendous price that he paid for their redemption as it is for our redemption today. I sometimes think that very candidly. I said this to one of my assistants when I was pastor of the church at Open Door on Sunday morning after we'd had the communion service. It was one of those Sundays where you felt like The congregation had not been reached, that they went through the service in sort of a matter-of-fact, a mechanical sort of way. And I said to this assistant of mine, I said, I felt this morning like it would be much better to bring in a lamb and slay the lamb here and let the blood run all over the place. And it would shock some people and some would faint. But it would let them know that a great price was paid for their salvation. So I see nothing wrong in having the sacrifices in the millennium. It's going to let people know what a tremendous price was paid. The people on earth, the price that was paid for our redemption. We'll be with him in heaven and we can see him and the scars We'll know him by the prints of the nails on his hands.
0: Our next question also comes from South Carolina. This time the listener is in Winston-Salem. She writes, I've heard several preachers say that Christians who are not in the will of God at the time of the rapture and will not be taken up because they are not ready and will have to go through the tribulation. Is this kind of thinking according to God's word?
1: Well, I do not know any place in God's word that says that. In fact, of the matter, God's word says the very opposite. And if they are not going up because they've stepped out of the will of God, and the answer is that because they're not ready, then I want to ask you the question, and I'd like to ask those brethren the question, who is ready? Are you ready? Are they ready? Am I ready? I don't think so. We are told that he is going to have to do a great deal to make us acceptable. Have you ever noticed the passage that's in the epistle to the Ephesians? And I think probably I ought to turn and read that passage. It's found in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. You know, he's going to have to do a cosmetic job and also an internal job on the church to make us acceptable you see my friend we are not able I don't care how far we are in this matter of sanctification we may feel like we are ready to sprout wings and we may get up and polish our halo every morning but my friend you and I are not worthy to stand in his presence so he's going to cleanse us and make us acceptable and those two people that stepped out of the will of God, they will be there also, by the way. And they'll be there the same way that the preachers are there. And that is because of the grace of God that Jesus died and made it possible for us to be saved. How wonderful that will be, by the way.
0: We turn now to a question from a listener in Jerome, Michigan, who writes... What do you see as the role of women in the church? And
1: should a church have deaconesses? Now let me say something that seems contradictory to my position. I do not believe that women should be preachers. They're not to be theologians. And I feel a woman's really out of place in that place. But when you've said that, you haven't said all. The reason that she's not to do that is I think God has something more important for us. If you'd go over to the 16th chapter of the Epistle to the Romans, first verse, it is the most remarkable verse you've ever seen. It says, I command unto you, Phoebe, our sister, not our brother, but our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is in Cenchrea. She apparently carried the epistle to the Romans in her skirt, to the Romans. May I say to you, friends, that was a pretty important assignment, if you tell me. Now, she didn't write the epistle to the Romans, but she carried it. May I say to you, that was a tremendous responsibility that she had. And I find that if you go on down in the 16th of Romans, women are pretty active in the church. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus. Here's a couple. You meet them all over the Roman Empire, all the way over to Ephesus. May I say to you that they were active in the church. And then you have down here two that I actually have a sermon on. And it is verse 12. Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa who labor in the Lord. Well, who are they? I don't know. Two women I've often thought they may have been twins, two women, maiden ladies. They never got married, you know, but they were active in the church. What were they doing? Not preaching. I don't know what they did, but they labored for the Lord, and they helped get out the word of God. Now, when you come to this office of deaconess, I believe today that it's been a big mistake that we have not given an importance to the office of deaconess and that women become officers in the church. Not deacons, not elders, not pastors, but deaconesses. And you know a well, number of things that they can do. I remember that we had a very wonderful couple when I was pastor of the church at the open door. And her husband died. And I had the funeral and my. I've never seen a woman so crushed, so heartbroken. So I felt like, and I wasn't supposed to visit at the church the open door, because, you know, membership was large. I couldn't get around visit anybody, so we had quite a few that did. But I felt obligated there, and I went out to try to comfort this lady. And if you want to know the truth, I didn't do any good at all. Yes, she appreciated the visit of the pastor and, you know, all that sort of thing. That sounded good, and that was fine. I didn't help her. And so I recognized I hadn't, so I went back and I called up another very wonderful member of the Church of the Open Door. She's a widow. She lost her husband. I said, Look, Miss So and so's out there heartbroken because she's just lost her husband. She thinks she can't live. She wants to die. And I said, I've been out talking to her. I didn't get anywhere. Well, you know, I told this woman, this widow, I said, go out and talk to her. So she went out and talked to her. And by the way, they became very good friends. And this woman told me afterwards, she says, you know, I don't know what I would have done if Miss so-and-so hadn't come out. And says it was so sweet and wonderful of her to do that. Now I say to you, I think we made a big mistake not having a few more deaconesses around in the church. And so I never wanted to upset the church, I guess. You know, some thought I was revolutionary enough. And so that would really brought about a revolution. But we need it, I think, in the church today. It would be nice to have women as deaconesses, and they can do things that men could never do.
0: In 1 Corinthians 11.22, it says what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. And then in 1 Corinthians 11.34 it says, But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. So this listener in Mill Hall, Pennsylvania writes, What is the meaning of these verses?
1: Well, they... Early church had this agape feast, love feast. It was marvelous. But when you get over to Corinth, I tell you, they abused it. And I've been to many banquets in churches, which I thought that should never have had. But I've also been to banquets in churches, which I found out were very spiritual, very beneficial. And we found out in our tour to Hawaii, it's remade our tour. We serve Two meals, breakfast and evening meal. That has drawn people together and to the Lord in a way that I didn't believe it could possibly happen. So that, very candidly, it's owing to how the meal is conducted in the church. I think there's too big an emphasis today on the kitchen. I've been in several new churches recently. They didn't even take me into the auditorium to show me that. They showed me the kitchen. Man, why well, there's no restaurant, the Waldorf Hotel in New York City doesn't have a kitchen that compared to some of these churches today. And may I say to you, the great emphasis is upon eating in the church. Now, if it were done in the right spirit, in the right way, and the Word of God was used as a means of getting the Word of God, I'd find. But I find out that it's the way from to get actually away from the Word of God. In fact, I've heard the Toastmaster make a statement like this. Well, tonight we're going to have a lot of fun. (laughs) That means we're not going to have much about the Bible, you see. I don't know why that today we're letting this psychological malaise take over. And today we've got to have a great deal of self, a great deal of the flesh, and a great emphasis on that. And not upon the Word of God, and that you can't have fun studying the Word of God. Now, I've found that studying the Word of God's a lot of fun.
0: Now we come to a letter written by a listener in Lubbock, Texas. She wrote to Dr. McGee concerning the concept of Christ's title, Son of Man, which she diligently studied and then presented her finding in her letter. She wanted Dr. McGee to review her conclusions and discuss them. Here now is Dr. McGee with her letter.
1: I am following your journey via radio through Genesis. At the same time, I'm commuting, that is, reading and rereading bits at a time in Matthew. Now on the Transfiguration, chapter 17, in your notes, you state that John does not include this event in his gospel because it's the Transfiguration of Jesus the man. In Matthew 16:28, the introductory verse to chapter 17, Jesus states, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Here Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, which supports your statement. The thought has crossed my mind that the reference that our Savior makes of himself elsewhere may be a clue to the meaning he intends. I've never heard or read a comment of this nature. This admission, I'm sure, only exposes my abysmal ignorance and tendency to lift from context. And may I intrude and say on the contrary, she's done an excellent job. Now, will you listen to this? To test my theory, I have followed the word believe in Young's concordance through the New Testament, checking out every reference. The outcome supports my thinking, but, of course, this is only one word. Young gives John 3.36, As he that believeth on the Son of Man hath, and this is an error, both the King James Version and the American Standard Version, (191) read, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting Son is identified in verse 34, He whom God hath sent. In every use of believe connected with man's acceptance of Jesus as Lord and Savior, he identifies himself with God, that is, Son of God, Son of the Father, sent of God, whom God hath sent. The Son, in every instance, clarified in context as implied divinity. Messiah, which is called Christ, only begotten Son. In no instance when the word believe is used in this connection is this left undone. It is not left to the reader to supply his choice of son of man or son of God. That is, in John 9:35, Jesus asks, the man who had been blind, dost thou believe in the Son of God? When Jesus spoke of being lifted up, he used the title Son of Man. Each time he repeated this idea. I grew up being taught the simple explanation that Jesus loved mankind and liked to refer to himself as the Son of Man and often did so. And may I say to you, my question is, am I off track in assuming that the title he chose in his many lessons to his disciples gives insight? to its meaning for me in my study of his word. And it certainly does. And I do want to say that is a real understanding of the word of God that this young lady has shown. Because son of man identifies him with mankind and it's used in connection with him as savior. And son of God connects him with deity and She's followed that through and found out that that's just the way that it goes.
0: Our next question comes to us from a listener in Melbourne, Florida. She writes, Where did the customs of our Christian holidays like Christmas, Easter, Good Friday, and Lent come from? And should we be celebrating the holy days of Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles?
1: And my answer definitely is no, but there must be something with it by way of self-explanation. Back in the Old Testament, God gave to his people many holy days. Seven great feasts were given to the people. And of course the Sabbath day and the sabbatic year and the year of jubilee. The Old Testament that is so closely identified with the pastoral and agricultural life had many of these holy days that God gave to these people. Now, the church has not been given any holy days that the church has added a great many. For instance, Christmas, and we make a great deal of it. If we do it the right way, I think it's still great, but the way it's being celebrated today, it's a pagan feast, and it's an insult to him. And to begin with, he never asked us to remember his birthday. Now, there is one day that he asked us to remember That is his death and his resurrection. He did ask us to remember those. And I feel like that we don't really put enough emphasis on those days. Those days we are to remember. Now, there are those that believe we ought to remember Pentecost because that's the birthday of the church. And I'll be very frank with you. I think that the church should observe that. And by the way, no one but the church could observe that day. But, of course, the world's got in on Christmas, and the world's got in on Easter, too. But the death and resurrection of Christ belong definitely to the church. And I think we should celebrate those days. But we have not been given any holy day. And we are pleased to remember every Lord's Day, which is the first day of the week, and that's the day he came back from the dead. So every Sunday we celebrate his resurrection. That's the day that we have our services. That's the day the church puts the emphasis on. So those are the things that are important, the death and resurrection of Christ. But everything else, and his ascension, I think it would be nice to remember that. But everything else is, to my judgment, something that, unless it's done in the right manner, should not be done at all.
0: Our final question today comes to us from Maitland, Florida. The listener says, As a very strong follower of Paul, as a Christian, of course, I put more emphasis on belief in Christ than in the Ten Commandments.
1: What do you think? Well, let me tell you this, that it's a good thing that you do. I hope you put no confidence in the law at all, the Ten Commandments. They cannot save you. No one in the Old Testament was ever saved by keeping the law. They all had to bring a little bloody sacrifice that pointed to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Now, the law was given for a purpose, but not for salvation. Listen to Romans three nineteen. Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, the law was never given to save man. It was given to show him he's a sinner, to give him the knowledge of sin, of what it is. And today we're getting away from it, and today we have a breakdown of morals. Why? Because of the fact they do not recognize that there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong, and that the Ten Commandments are given for a purpose, to show that we are sinners before Almighty God. And that is the purpose of, of the law. It was never given to save. So the law can't save you. It's to reveal to you you're a sinner, You're not to get rid of the law. It's a mirror, Paul says, that you see yourself. James speaks of it, I think, that way. And Paul says it was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, but that only faith in Christ can save us. And that is the important thing. I think that you should Put the emphasis there and not even compare putting faith in Christ and keeping the Ten Commandments on the same par because that's mixing up apples and oranges, and you don't do that. The law was not a savior, never was, never intended to be, by the way.
0: We hope that you've enjoyed today's broadcast and that one of your questions was answered by our teacher, Dr. McGee. If you're still left maybe to ponder a question that has arisen from our study of God's word, then we'd like to remind you that we have a number of helpful tools that can help you in your understanding of the scriptures. To receive our resource catalog, you can call us anytime, just leave a voicemail request with your name, address, and the call letters of the station. This week we'll continue Dr. McGee's 5-year study through the whole word of God, book by book and chapter by chapter. If you've not already done so, be sure to ask to be added to our mailing list for notes and outlines and our monthly newsletter when you write or call. Although many of you are blessed through these question and answer programs, it's our flagship through the Bible broadcast that's being taken around the world in over a hundred languages and dialects. Now that may be difficult to comprehend, but consider for a moment that when you're listening to the teaching of Dr. McGee, a Muslim woman in Iran is also listening at the same time There could be a small group gathered around a speaker box in Vietnam, or maybe a young man in Argentina is also hearing these programs in Spanish as a prisoner in Poland listens from his cell. These people who hear these broadcasts are really just like you and me. They're in need of a great Savior and have a heart longing for good Bible teaching so that they too can grow in their faith. Would you take the time today to pray for them? We'd greatly appreciate it, and so would they. If you'd like to contact our offices for the catalog or ask to be on the mailing list or request our International Prayer Guide, call 1-800-65-BIBLE Monday through Thursday from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific Time or write to Questions and Answers in the U.S. Box 7100, Pasadena, California 91109, in Canada Box 25325, London, Ontario N6C 6B1, or find us online at www.ttb.org. Now we pray that our God will answer all your questions and solve all your problems. Jesus paid it all, all to him I Sin left the This program has been brought to you by the faithful friends and supporters of the Worldwide Ministry of Through the Bible Radio Network.